what's up everybody what a fucking week this has been two weeks now at this point in some ways tragic but truth of the matter is there's tragedies like this all the time and we never see a social movement like this so in a lot of ways it's super inspiring we are seeing people step up and interested in being allies into the racial justice and social justice and criminal justice fights that previously weren't I hope we're patient with each other during this process. Sometimes it can feel so confusing that someone can have such a different lived experience and be so ignorant on a subject. But it's the truth of the matter. We we all are living very different lives. And, you know, I was reminded of how ignorant I could be on a subject when I talked to Jaha on this podcast about uh, female genital mutilation. Like, I was reminded that I could know absolutely nothing about a subject and just have all the facts and assumptions wrong. So I hope we're patient with each other. On this episode, I have Rashad Robinson. He's the president of Color of Change, an amazing organization that works on building black power in America. Rashad is a super effective leader. Previous to this, he led GLAAD when GLAAD was helping pass a lot of the gay rights that we're familiar with over the course of the previous decade. I felt really honored to get some time with Rashad. He actually pushed me back 20 minutes because he was talking to Obama and then I tried to get him on the line the next day and he was talking to Hillary. So it's, it's a big moment for Rashad and his organization. I was happy we got to spend some time with him and speak with him. You know, my hope is this is the first inning of these conversations that we push for police reform, but we really start having conversations on political justice, economic justice, international economic justice. Black Lives Matter, it seems so obvious, but our world is structured in so many ways that butt up against that phrase. As white America educates themselves on the violence and oppression that the modern world enforces upon black and brown people, I hope this spurs a lot of other conversations about how to restructure the world to eradicate suffering and poverty and desperation. All right, I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get into it. What do most people not understand about the fight for racial justice in America? That's a great question. I think the first thing that people don't understand, or maybe they do understand it, but then they don't know how to operationalize their understanding, is that I think a lot of people want a silver bullet or a quick solution to the problem. They want to know what they can do today to like solve the problem tomorrow, or what they can do right now to like stop what they're seeing in front of them. And there are things that we can do to build more power, to change the rules, to make things better. But I do think that I'm not looking for just people to be allies. I'm looking for people to be co-conspirators. I'm looking for people to feel like this is not going to be something that we finish in an election cycle. But there's things that we can do every single day to make things better. One of my highest hopes for this moment is this conversation about criminal justice reform and police reform gets parlayed into a conversation about economic equality and equal political power. What are your highest hopes for this moment? Well, actually, in some ways, that, that's my highest hope, too. You know, I, people don't experience issues. They experience life. Forces that hold people back are like deeply interrelated so that a racist criminal justice system requires a media culture that sustains it, that creates uh, the demand for more police, the demand for high incarceration rates, that you can't have uh, political inequality without economic inequality. They go hand in hand. 
And so it's important that we recognize that as much as we are focusing our attention on policing, if the communities that are dealing with the terror and violence of policing, um, they're dealing with the fact that we live in food deserts, that we have schools that are failing and inadequate, that we have sort of all sorts of ways in which um, our schools are underfunded, that we're being hit in many different directions. And so we've got to recognize that the work has to be about building power because racism is like a shapeshifter, right? And over time, right, when they once had poll taxes in this country that they used to put on black people to prevent us from voting, poll taxes may have went away, but then we got voter ID laws. ID laws that say you can't vote with your student ID, but you can vote with your gun license. And so they can always design new laws. And so if we're not constantly building political power, what we end up doing is we think we win something and then we actually don't win. You're talking about political power, but I'm also hearing you talk about shifting culture. And if we don't address culture, oppression will just find another form in our society. You were previously over at GLAAD, where you helped shift culture around gay rights and, uh, and were really successful in doing so. What lessons can you apply from your time at GLAAD and the successes you had changing cultural narratives around gay rights to this current fight around racial justice? Yeah, so, you know, I got to GLAD in 2005. So just as mayors in the United States were being sort of slapped down for trying to marry couples after Massachusetts was the first state to start uh, legally uh, marrying couples. And I moved up pretty quickly in GLAD. When I left, I was the head of programs. So I oversaw all the Hollywood work, all the new work in our news, all the work that's sort of like the advocacy work of GLAD. So when I left GLAD in 2011, I grew up in New York. And New York was just starting to marry couples. And so it was a huge culture shift at that period of time. And a couple of things were really important to that culture shift. All the ways in which we actually changed the rules of cultural vehicles, right? Like what you could say and the type of content you could produce about gay people in 2005 looked very different in 2011. Both the floor in terms of like what was acceptable, in terms of the worst type of stuff, as well as the ceiling in terms of what you could show and how like far you could go. Those things became radically different and that every single day sent a message to people about what was okay. It sent a message to politicians about what they could push for. It sent a message to business leaders about how they could engage. And so forcing that type of change inside of corporations can't happen with LGBT people alone, right? It took allies making it their fight. It took folks standing up and speaking out. And that type of cultural shift of people pushing back and changing the channel on bad content, maybe in a public space like a bar or a gym, folks speaking out in their workplace, in their churches, in all sorts of places where people were occupying those spaces. It's interesting, the right does a very good job occupying space. And we have to do a better job of being unapologetic about how we sort of drive our agenda. When it comes to gay rights, it felt like there was this moment that it went from we should fight for this reform or that reform to it became cultural gospel. Like every big brand now runs a gay pride marketing campaign. What do you think it's going to take for racial justice to hit this inflection point where we're not talking about individual reforms, but it just becomes ingrained in our culture to support and fight for racial justice? Yeah, I mean, as someone who's like black and gay, I want to be really clear that there is something singular 
about racial injustice in this country. And so as much as there are ways in which we can look at some aspects of GLAD's work and some aspects of LGBT equality, we have to recognize that like we achieved a lot of progress on LGBT equality, but the way in which Black queer folks are treated in this country, the sort of opportunity and the outcomes for Black queer folks, it looks very different than what it looks like for white queer folks. And so I want to both celebrate the victories of that movement and also recognize the way in which racial inequality, the way in which racial injustice uh, from the foundation of this country, from how indigenous people were targeted, exploited with genocide to all the ways in which black servitude created our economy, created our prosperity and continues to be a thing that's like on the backs of black people. And, and the way in which how slavery leads to Jim Crow, Jim Crow leads to mass incarceration, and how systems realign. I do think that this is a very interesting moment, right? It doesn't mean that we're going to like end racism. What it does mean is that we have the potential as an inflection point to make a huge leap forward in the rules that we can change and the sort of cultural context and like people's mental models of what's acceptable, right? I remember five years ago, it was, we were called racist when we said Black Lives Matter. I remember nine years ago when I got to Color of Change, talking about race was racist, right? And then saying Black Lives Matter was racist. And now you have Black Lives Matter being written on streets and raised on flags. And there's a potential to mistake presence for power, right? Mm -hmm. Visibility and awareness for actual being able to change the rules. And so when I think about this moment of like actually making a difference, you'll never see a petition from Color of Change that says, uh, tell Donald Trump to speak out in favor of affirmative action. We know that no matter how many people sign a petition, Donald Trump is never going to speak out of affirmative action. And you may see some of those things from like a, a change.org or something like that. That's very different than what we do. We work to build power, right? And so over the next week, we are going to be taking on the Fraternal Order of Police. Because we recognize that it's not enough to take on policy change if we're not undoing all of the barriers that stand into change, right? If you want to make meaningful change on guns in this country, you actually have to take on the NRA. And you actually have to have a strategy to deal with your opponents because you can implement laws that make you feel really good. But if those laws aren't enforced, what you've just done is you've sold people a story about how change happens that actually doesn't actually deliver uh, the type of change that makes people's lives better. And so I'm less interested in a press release that says we've won, and I'm way more interested in sort of a change environment, a change circumstance for people in their lives. Racial injustice in America has so many layers, right? We're talking about police reform. We talk about criminal justice reform. We're talking about voter suppression. We're talking about economic equality. How would you invite someone to this conversation, people stepping into this for the first time that might be intimidated by all the layers and complexity, what would you share with them at a high level to simplify the core of this fight without being too simplified? Yeah, so here's the thing. So I wanted to start big and funnel us in, right? And so, cause I, I think it's important that I don't sell you a story that I can tell you to click this petition and we make change. But I send out a lot of things regularly saying, click this thing to get us to this next step because I very much understand exactly what you're saying. And so you need friends to help you sort of move through this process. And that's, that's how we can engage 7 million people, right? Because we recognize that what we do is we work to simplify things. I mean, I think on the front of our website, it says color of change 
helps you do something meaningful about injustice. We provide the steps along the way. And so part of that is, is that we have designed strategies to actually get us there, strategies that actually require people power to overturn them, right? It would not be useful if it required a bunch of lawyers to go into a courtroom for the things that we're asking people to do. Now, there are strategies that courts are important, right? But, you know, wouldn't it be great if we changed the laws so that our lawyers actually had better laws to, like, argue once they got into the courts? You know, for us, we sort of set people up with those next steps. And we do that with influencers. We do that with everyday people. And we try to provide people with those sort of steps, those action steps, whether they be a short code to take action. And that may feel like sort of deeply insufficient, right? Like text 55156, text demands to that. And so people can like, well, what does that actually mean? So on the back end right now, we then collect all those names. Then my data team is crossing them with the voter file and getting folks sort of aligned into places around the country. We might be looking for district attorney races that we want to help people that engage with. And then we're going to start directing people at those DA races that we think we can make change. I might ask you to join us in pushing a media platform to stop showing reality shows featuring cops because we know from our research that those type of content creates cultural narratives that fuel policing. I might send you a next thing that asks you to join us in taking on the Fraternal Order Police, because I need more white allies joining us in that effort, because the last time I was in a meeting with them was actually during the Obama years, and it was after there were a number of police killings, and Obama had a number of leaders, about 30 of us, come to the White House to sit around the table. He made us put our cell phones outside the door. And for four hours, he like had this meeting. And I remember starting to speak about racial profiling and experience I had with being stopped in Frisk in Central Park. And a little bit into what I was saying, I was actually interrupted by the head of the Fraternal Order Police. And he said, all of this talk of racial profiling is new to me. So he didn't say, I don't agree with your demands. He didn't say, you guys are asking for too much. He didn't say you're overstating the problem. He said, it doesn't exist. And so that is what we're dealing with on the other side, is a, a group of people who, will, who have created a whole set of laws that we actually have to disrupt. But we will provide those avenues. Because I think the thing that I really want to leave you with is that we don't have a gap on ideas. There are a lot of great and brilliant ideas to solve the problem. And some are maybe further ahead than where we can actually get right now. And we need to like make them our North Stars and educate people about them. Some of them, I believe, are too weak for this moment. But regardless of that situation, our problem is not in ideas. Our problem is in power and that we don't have enough power to actually make things happen. You can say the same thing about gun reform, right? If 75% of Americans believe that we need gun reform in this country, it's not a question of the issue. It's a question of our political power to achieve it. And that is where you all come in to really help us build that power, to help invite more people in. And for us, that means we have to hold politicians accountable for not accepting money from fraternal order police. If they say they wanna change policing, they can't accept money from the people who don't. Those are the things that we're gonna help people take action on. And what we will always do is provide you with the content that we've tested to make sure that people can understand it and it's in, and it's in bites that then they can share. What type of legislative changes and actions are happening right now that you are involved with? And what do you think we need to continue to do in this moment? 
So at the federal level, I'm going to say there's legislation, but none of it has any legs until we win. There are sort of a number of states that do have bail reform legislation on the agenda. We're in the summer, so we're out of legislative sessions in most places. And so we're now sort of gearing up in the mapping around where we're going to be introducing new bail reform. This movement has actually created new senses of possibilities about what we can demand. And so we're actually taking a step back to think about how we're going to come back at bail reform now. But absolutely, and we should just stay in contact because our organization does a lot of work at leading on bail reform in a lot of states where we have, um, where Black people are sort of a healthy percentage of the population and we do a lot of support for places where we are not. And then we have to do a lot of protection of places where we have advanced things on bail, like California. I don't want to dis, I want to briefly say the fraternal or the police stuff is really important. Them and the judges are the biggest barriers to actually passing bail reform. They're the ones who get the bills watered down. And in New York, they're the ones who have led the campaign in the media to like tell a whole lot of lies about how bail reform actually played itself out and whether or not it led to any upticks in crime, which it hasn't. The other thing is our district attorney work. Uh, DAs are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice space. And at the end of the day, they decide who gets bail and does it. And they also have a lot to do with the racial disparities around bail. But DAs, DAs, DAs are so powerful. There's 2,400 DAs right now in this country. 70% of them run unopposed. 90% of DAs are white. They are the most powerful actors in making decisions. 85% of people are incarcerated at the local level. So as much as we will have a big debate on federal legislation, most people are incarcerated at the local level. It is a huge lever for change. And that's why we're focusing a lot of our attention there. But the clearest thing we've got to do is we have to use this moment to force as much pressure at the systems that have been preventing progress. We have to dismantle them, disrupt them, knock them down. And when we do that, I think we can force new systems to be built. And that, I think, is what's before us. And we, I think we really got the potential to do something here. And so I hope that we can make something happen. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work. If you'd like to follow us on social, we're at WWDKPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube, you can find our channel if you search What We Don't Know Podcast. And if you go to our website, www.dkpod.com, you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content. All right. Hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.